Welcome to the Psych Central Podcast, where each episode features guest experts discussing psychology and mental health in everyday, plain language. Here's your host, Gabe Howard. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central Show Podcast. My name is Gabe Howard, and I'll be your host for the rest of the show. And we have a great guest with us today. We have Dr. Russell Morfitt with us, who started a really cool program for people who suffer from anxiety called Learn to Live. And I'm going to let him explain it better because I have probably already botched it. But Dr. Morfitt, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Gabe. Well, we're glad to have you here. So first, if you can explain what Learn to Live is, you know, just give us a little background on that, who it helps, what it's for, and, uh, you know, just kind of take us through it. Glad to do that. You know, we've learned that uh, three out of four people who suffer from problems like anxiety, or depression-related difficulties will never come to see a psychologist like me in the office for whatever reason, either because of accessibility or cost, or they, they really just don't know where to start. So anyway, we created Learn to Live, which offers programs to help people apply the solutions that research has shown to be most helpful. We actually have four programs. We have one program for stress, anxiety, and worry. We have another one for depression. We have one for social anxiety and one for insomnia. So these are four uh, CBT-based, that is cognitive behavioral therapy-based programs. It's not like Skyping with a therapist. It's not telepsychology. It's actually going to the to our website and accessing programs that have been prepared. They're all self-contained. The research has shown that going through a program like this can be just as effective as, as seeing me in the office face-to-face. So people can access our programs because their employer provides it to them or their health plan provides it to them or their university. And then they can go complete our assessment, learn about themselves. And if they are finding that, wow, I guess I am socially anxious, then they can use one of our programs. You you sort of piqued my interest there when you said insomnia. Is insomnia something that responds to therapy? It really does. And that that's one of the the best kept secrets out there regarding therapy can can touch on issues that have been historically viewed as being primarily medical issues. But absolutely, there's a, a solid batch of research that shows that when cognitive behavioral therapy is applied to insomnia, it's actually our most powerful treatment that's been identified in, in research. You know, most of the medications that are out there can be fantastic for people in the short term, but they really aren't designed for long-term application for treatment of insomnia. But when a very specific batch of CBT tools is applied to insomnia, it can make a huge difference in people's quality of sleep and the amount that they're able to sleep, and they can fall asleep faster. Let's sort of merge into a conversation about anxiety for a little bit, because I, I, I think that our listeners understand anxiety most of all. It's it's kind of this one thing that sort of binds us, because it seems like in this day and age, everything makes us anxious. Is that reasonable? Anxiety really does seem to be on, on the increase, and especially it seems to be on the increase in cultures and in, in countries that actually have higher higher levels of, of income. And the countries where there are, there's lower levels of income, you'd think, well, those people would really be struggling more. They must be more highly anxious. But now we see it more in Western and, and more affluent countries. And we have a number of influences that are happening in, in our culture. It's, it's wonderful that we have access to more information and and, you know, we have our 24-hour news cycle that 
always keeps news that is interesting right in front of us. And as it turns out, danger is particularly interesting news. And, you know, danger is more interesting than, say, safety or or predictability. And truth is that that having this kind of access can keep us keep us worried and and keep us concerned about, you know, what might be coming next for us. Along that same vein, you know, you mentioned the 24-hour news cycle, and I, I think people can absolutely relate to that. But how is it the technology footprint in our lives? You know, it, mobile phones, computers, social media, Facebook, Instagram, wearables, apps. I mean, all of these things keep things in front of our face as well. Is this impacting our anxiety? Is this increasing our, well, our anxiety? probably a mixed bag, Gabe. We know that, you know, we get really compelling inputs from from each of those media that you mentioned. And and that's interesting to us. And, you know, we only we have to turn back our calendars about 100 years to the days when, you know, people went to bed when it got dark or uh, they got the news when they read the paper. Right. But right. But now we have, uh, you know, this opportunity to experience perpetual and ongoing input. And that does tend to perpetuate anxiety for some people. So for some people, all that news brings fear. The technology makes it sometimes easier to avoid. So if I have a proclivity to avoid things anyway, because I tend to be anxious, I'm more likely to do it if it's made easy for me. And so if I'm able to have conversations without seeing people face to face, then I just might do that if I'm if I'm given to anxiety. You know, you mentioned social media, and certainly the the social comparison plays a big role in the anxiety for many people, especially social anxiety. So if I'm seeing everyone happy on Instagram or Facebook, which can be wonderful for our social lives, but can be very difficult for our social lives, and I start doing that social comparison, and I start thinking, well, oh, well happiness must be the natural set point for living and always being happy is is how I should be. I'm not. So now I'm questioning how I'm experiencing life. I, I maybe I'm engaging in some kind of social precautions and as a result, and I'm, I'm posting the really positive things about myself. I'm less authentic. And then I maybe remain more afraid of disclosing who I really am. My social anxiety is perpetuated, so it can affect us negatively in some ways, even though it also gives us really good opportunities to connect if if we want to. So whether you're seeking out, for lack of a better word, negative information or positive information, the way that you internalize that information can decide sort of how you are viewing that. Are, are we really just sort of programmed or some of us programmed to just be anxious and that's what we have to learn not to do? We get programmed by our, our social learning, and then we also have our own genetic predispositions. And the answer to your question is yes, we do tend to be pre-programmed to experience data in a certain way. And for those of us who are starting off with an orientation where we tend to have a cognitive set, where we're assuming that others are likely to be critical of us, that we are defective in some ways, we don't measure up. If we take only a superficial look at what's available out there on social media, what we're going to see is, oh, yeah, look at look at YouTube comments. People are really critical. And I might stop there. And I might look at social media and look, others are happy and happier than me and more well-adjusted than me and have more friends than me. Oh, yeah, I'm really defective. And those beliefs can be perpetuated unless we deliberately choose to start questioning them and start looking around and 
know, some of the CBT tools are really useful for that, like data collection. It's a kind of behavioral experimentation where we simply force ourselves to start looking around. And, and even though we might have, for example, the assumption that, that, yeah, everybody's super judgmental and they're going to criticize me given the chance, when we pause and start looking at, around at the people around us, we often find that, wait a second, not everybody is that way. And when we start looking at, at our own lives and start questioning whether really those standards of being perfect and always happy really have to apply to us and really do apply to everyone else, we often find that, wait a second, that isn't really true. That's not how the world works. We're going to step away to hear from our sponsor. We'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Secure, convenient, and affordable online counseling. All counselors are licensed, accredited professionals. Anything you share is confidential. Schedule secure video or phone sessions. Plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed. A month of online therapy often costs less than a single traditional face-to-face session. Go to BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central. And we're back talking anxiety with Dr. Morfitt. In all of your research and, and, and everything that you've done, and what are some misconceptions that you found from people who are coping with anxiety? What does society sort of get wrong? There are a few things that, that come to mind, Gabe. One is that, that anxiety itself is problematic. Often that's a starting point for, for people who suffer with anxiety. You know, obviously, I don't like it. And so the assumption is often so anxiety is therefore bad. And yet, we know that anxiety really serves a useful purpose when it's at a modest level. For you, Gabe, to prep for this discussion took a little bit of anxiety to nudge you. For an athlete who's going to prepare for an event, who's doing training, a little bit of anxiety can, can nudge them toward trying harder. And that's something that was learned over the years in good psychological research. So that's one misconception that anxiety is problematic. You know, the flip side would be that anxiety itself has to be chronic and, and merely coped with. You know, instead, many people become skilled at recognizing it and normalizing it. They, they learn tools. And in, so in truth, they can apply their favorite tool, like you know, I'm most familiar with CBT tools, so that they might find that, you know, if I apply uh, exposure, we call it fear-facing at Learn to Live, or I apply acceptance, decatastrophizing, that's a cognitive tool. If I apply those tools that, wait a second, anxiety just isn't such a powerful force in my life anymore. And I've tried to stop controlling it. I let it come, I let it go, and I just respond to things differently. So it turns out that, wait a second, anxiety doesn't have to be just the set point for me that I have to necessarily be stuck with it. I think another misconception is regarding the treatment for anxiety. And many people assume that CBT, you know, which is, has the strongest evidence basis in treatment of, uh, of anxiety problems, that they assume that, that, that CBT is about changing your thoughts, which that's part of it. That's the C of it. But the behavioral part, the B, is so often omitted. And, you know, that involves really leaning into the anxiety. If I do exposure, like we call it fear-facing at Learn to Live, we call it flaw-facing if I'm deliberately being imperfect because I'm struggling with perfectionism that drives anxiety. And, or I can do imaginal exposure where I'm imagining stories. I, I worry about things. Well, what if I would imagine those stories come true on purpose? I'm leaning into the anxiety and then 
along the way, I'm relinquishing precautions. I'm letting go of of those things that I'm tempted to do to try to play it safe. So I'm no longer going to just keep looking at my phone to to avoid an interpersonal interaction, or no longer going to like keep so busy that I don't experience those troubling thoughts that would bother me otherwise. So those those are some misconceptions that come to mind, Gabe. I really liked what you said that having some anxiety about doing something important you use like, you know, me preparing for this podcast or athletes preparing for, you know, the big game because I agree with this. I I'm often backstage with other speakers before we all go on, you know, they kind of keep us in in, in, you know, the green room. And there's always usually a, a younger speaker there. It's like, oh, I'm so nervous. And I bet you don't get nervous uh, is what they say <laughs> to me. And I'm like, I'm like, no, that's I, are you kidding? This is this is the most anxiety producing thing that I ever do. I am more anxious standing behind the stage than I am when I walk on it. But I always say that that's great. I hope that never goes away. Because that makes me take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that makes me practice. That makes me be prepared. That makes me know where all of the files are. That makes me learn to pronounce your name correctly, Dr. Morfitt. Uh, because I don't want to be embarrassed or ashamed or on and on and on. So it is interesting that you have also said that the research kind of shows that having some anxiety is fantastic. So when does it cross over? I mean, obviously, if the anxiety was so bad, I couldn't connect for this podcast that would that would prevent me from doing my job and making a living. But a little bit of anxiety being prepared is good. Are there any markers? I mean, how does a person know? It is a little bit subjective, but, you know, a couple of markers involve how, how distressing is it to me? How upsetting is this anxiety to me? How much how much am I really suffering? And if my suffering is really subjectively quite high, then probably going to be something I want to look at addressing. Or if it's impairing me because I'm not able to live the life that I want. You know, I found in the past before uh, Learn to Live became so busy and was and has been growing in the past, I, I spent a lot of time, you know, as a psychologist in the office and I would say there are really three different reasons why people came to see me for anxiety in the office. And one was, yeah, because they were feeling so anxious and the anxiety was really distressing to them. The feeling was was so strong that it was very difficult to manage it. And so the discomfort was one reason. Another reason was because they found that they were avoiding so many things because of the anxiety. They wanted to avoid the anxiety. And as a result, their world got smaller and smaller. And they were sick and tired of having to avoid so many things in order to be comfortable. Third reason would be because of all the precautions that they felt like they had to engage in, that either they didn't like continuing to do those things or others in their lives were bothered by them. So others in their lives might have said, you know, these kind of compulsive things that you do, and, and maybe the person actually had obsessive compulsive disorder. So these compulsions are, are really problematic for us or for the person, but it could be that the precautions that they engaged in outside of OCD were were problematic, that, you know, it's just hard that we always have to do all these certain things in order for you to not feel so anxious. And so because of the anxiety, because of the precautions, because of the avoidance, they wanted to do something about it. So I would say, if any of those three things are causing difficulty in someone's life, then they might want to take a step to do something about the anxiety. From a medical perspective, what's the difference between everyday stress, worry, anxiety, 
and then clinical level anxiety. And I know you talked about it a little bit, but are there different definitions for those four things? I'll try to keep track of the four that you just asked about, Gabe, (laughs) but if I might add another one, which would be panic to the list, because panic is another one that's often confused at times or experienced alongside the the others that you mentioned. In general, we think of we think of stress as being that experience of discomfort where I'm facing a specific thing. So there's a real trigger out there that's obvious that I can identify. So maybe it's a deadline or maybe I'm anticipating talking to someone or maybe there's a, a bill that needs to get paid. And so there's a specific thing that I can point at and I can say that thing is a threat that I can identify. I at least perceive it as a threat. And as a result, I'm experiencing a lot of discomfort. And so my muscles are often tense because I'm in a state of readiness. And, and it might be that my heart is pounding or that I'm having some, some chest pain. It could be that I'm, I'm feeling hot. So I, I often have physical markers that go with, with the stress. Now, the anxiety in general tends to be kind of similar to that, except often anxiety, there isn't an obvious stressor out there necessarily. Sometimes I can't point to anything. So the anxiety is is more of a free-floating experience that I have. This thing is bothering me. Not sure exactly why, but I'm feeling anxious. Sometimes people would say, well, I can I can feel anxious. Sometimes I can identify a trigger. Sometimes I can't. But that tends to be one of the distinctions between anxiety and stress, that stress more often, there's this identifiable trigger. Uh, and then we would say that anxiety is more at at a clinical level if some of those other criteria that I just mentioned a a moment ago are met and it's really affecting my life and I'm really uncomfortable or I'm unable to do these things that I care about or it's distracting me from from doing what I care about. I mentioned panic as well. So if we flip to looking at panic, some people will report that they're experiencing anxiety uh, when what they're really experiencing is panic. And panic is more the short-lived less prolonged events. So panic attack usually lasts from like one minute to, to 20 minutes. So it's it's not experienced over an extended time. It's, it's much more brief and intense. And during that intense panic experience, the person's heart might be racing. They have other physical markers as well. They might feel dizzy, lightheaded, wave of, wave of hot, wave of cold, might feel nauseated or tingly or prickles in the fingers. And, and so those physical markers are really strong during panic as, alongside this urge to, to escape or to, to get to safety. And so sometimes people will experience panic but, but call it anxiety. And within CBT treatment, for example, Uh, We address the two very differently, especially if the ultimate fear is of the panic attack rather than having panic because I'm afraid of something else. And where does worry fit in in all of that? That that gets us our fourth and or fifth uh, (laughs) of of the grouping. (laughs) Rats. I didn't get all of them. Uh, Yeah, the... uh, the, So worry is mostly the thoughts that relate to anxiety and stress. So think of worry as unproductive ruminative kind of churning thinking. It's not producing a product that is resolving a problem. It's not about effective problem solving. It's about me thinking over and over about something in a way that's not helpful. It doesn't produce a solution. It keeps me anxious. Well, I appreciate you answering that. So we're, we're getting near the end of the show. So the, 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 I have two more questions for you. The first one is, where can folks find this online program, the Learn to Live program? Our, our programs are, are made available to people in various ways. So 
our programs are available to people who their employer provides them with our Learn to Live website and uh, a special code they can use for accessing our, our services, or maybe their health plan or their university has provided that to them. Other people can simply go to our website, learntolive.com. And for some people, they want to simply take the assessment. I'm so glad we've been able to make an assessment available to people so that all those people out there who say, I, I don't know if anxiety is a thing for me. I don't know if I'm depressed. Is my insomnia bad enough that be worried about it? Well, they can complete this assessment. And there's five different domains that are being assessed in this quick assessment. It takes five, six minutes to complete. And people are able to, to learn about themselves. And, and they can find out whether, you know, that anxiety level is really problematic for them, whether their stress is at a at a really high level. And then what runs behind that then is an algorithm that might recommend one of our programs if, if it would be a good fit for them. And then they can either choose to do nothing. Okay, I learned about myself from the assessment. They can choose to enroll in one of our programs, the one that was recommended or a different one. If they, they do enroll, what they'll find is that there's a welcoming video for each of the eight lessons. So if, if they're going through, say, the social anxiety program. There'll be eight different lessons they experience. Each one lasts 30 to 45 minutes. They can start and stop as much as they want, whenever they want. Um, and they'll find that there's a welcoming video. And then there's animations that they can learn the, the tools through that are really quite disarming. And, and they can apply the skills right on the site and through the, uh, the tools that we provide. We decided early on, we could have made it highly text-based where it's like read and quiz, read and quiz, you know, learn like you do in school, just read and quiz. We chose not to do that, and so instead we've made it much more multimedia. That's what people would experience when they when they do any of our four programs. Thank you so much for being here with us today, and thank you for all of that information. My final question uh, before we go ahead and close out is, how do you, you personally, deal with your anxiety and stress? Inquiring minds want to know. <laughs> how do I apply this stuff to myself? That's a, <laughs> that's a good question, Gabe. I... You know, in truth, I do a lot of in vivo exposure that is facing my own fears. So social anxiety comes naturally to me. So I find that social situations, I have the opportunity to deliberately make myself uncomfortable at times. And I benefit from doing that, even sometimes doing things imperfectly at times. I do a lot of cognitive work with myself as well, decatastrophizing. So talking through, wait a second, even if this does go wrong, is it the end of the world? That kind of thing. How, how could I cope if, if this person really does judge me? Or how terrible would it be if this car wreck does happen or if I end up being late? Sometimes I do progressive muscle relaxation where I'm relaxing my body or I do breathing exercises sometimes. I, I apply a lot of acceptance where I'm sort of riding the wave of, of anxiety or whatever moods I might have, frustration in the heat of the moment. You know, I'm actually pretty absent-minded, so I, I make some mistakes, and then when I make mistakes, it would be easy to beat myself up. So I apply alternatives to dwelling as a tool. That's what we call the exercise of saying, okay, I am going to move on from this thought. It's not helpful to me to dwell on this mistake that I just made. I've, I've really learned already everything I can from that, and it wants to stick, and I'm I'm moving on, and sometimes that involves doing some little mental games to, to help me move on. You know, in general, I, I don't handle stress and anxiety, 
anxiety perfectly, but I keep working on it and I find that I'm making progress every day. I think that is a great message and I really appreciate you saying that because I think sometimes people believe, like you said earlier in the show, that people have it figured out, that other people don't get anxious because they're a doctor and they've done a bunch of research on anxiety or on and on and on. So I, I really appreciate your candor and being honest that, hey, you get a little better every day and anxiety affects you just like it affects everybody else. It's true. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being here. We really, really appreciate it. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And remember, you can get one week of free, convenient, affordable, private online counseling anytime, anywhere, just by visiting betterhelp.com slash psychcentral. We will see everybody next week. You've been listening to the Psych Central podcast. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show or on your favorite podcast player. To learn more about our host, Gabe Howard, please visit his website at gabehoward.com. Psychcentral.com is the internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website run by mental health professionals. Overseen by Dr. John Grohall, psychcentral.com offers trusted resources and quizzes to help answer your questions about mental health, personality, psychotherapy, and more. Please visit us today at psychcentral.com. If you have feedback about the show, please email show at psychcentral.com. Thank you for listening, and please share widely. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day, no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.